back to Our Maryland's Politics and Policy podcast. I'm your host, Brittany. With the legislative session back in full swing this week, we wanted to get a better understanding of where some current issues stand, as well as an idea of what we can expect to see from the upcoming session. To get a better idea of where the issue stands and what we can expect to see with the legislature, we sat down with Senator Mac Middleton, who chairs the Finance Committee, which dealt with this bill and the issue of paid sick leave multiple times before its final passage. But just want to get started by thanking you so much, Senator Middleton, for being with us on the show. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, so just kind of to get started, uh, last spring, the General Assembly passed what most observers would call a common sense measure to expand paid sick leave to pr- protections to some 700,000 Marylanders. Um, that bill, the Healthy Working Families Act, actually came through your committee, and you played an important part in crafting the bill and getting it through the Senate. So can you tell our listeners a little more about the work that went into that bill and how it's going to make a difference for working Marylanders? Absolutely. You've you mentioned the numbers, and I think they're fairly accurate. Um, I spent a lot of time with the bill. Uh, it did not pass, not this last session, but the session before. This piece of legislation has been before the body for years now. A uh, year before last, uh, sunny died weekend, the president said, I want the bill out of committee. And I worked feverishly to get the bill out of committee, had uh, you know, just session after session with all the stakeholders, and we weren't able to get it through. So uh, uh, it's one of those things that, from a public policy perspective, myself, and I consider myself, that's my strength. I love public policy, what's in the best interests of the state and its citizens. And uh, it, to me, it was just a common sense thing. When you realize the changes that have occurred in the workforce, where so many people now are in part-time jobs, especially working women that have multiple jobs, just in their heads of household, and the, uh, the uh, uh, financial consequence that occurs when you don't have paid sick leave. You know, somebody that's getting paid weekly has to take off a day of sick leave for a child or if they're sick themselves, and who wants sick people around? Right. You know, that, that's 20% of uh, her paycheck or, or their paycheck. So if, from a public policy perspective, it was the right thing to do. And I did what uh, some of my mentors have, had advised me in the past, never fall in love with a bill. <laughs> well, this is one that I fell in love with very passionately. And I think if you're going to, and I said at that at the end of the session that I'm going to bring the bill back next year. I'm going to be the Senate sponsor. Okay. And so we did. Mm-hmm. So in the interim, I have a, a strong uh, a belief that you know if you're going to introduce a bill that's controversial, you have an obligation to try to work out you know the controversy. So I spent that whole entire interim, nine months, mm-hmm. working with. Uh, 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 groups, individual groups, to see if there wasn't some way that we could find some middle ground. And what we ended up with was a bill that was quite a bit different than the bill that the House had paid. You know, when the the numbers of days, sick leave days that you can accrue, how many days you can carry over, you know, when you start the, your your when you can start utilizing your earned sick leave. Mm-hmm. You know, it was came over from the House at 90. It ended up at 106 in the Senate. So but there were, and a lot of those changes were, major changes were to make it more business friendly, as well as for the provider community to, to make it, so it didn't have as much of a financial negative impact on them. I thought it was well thought out. 
you know, there was a lot of compromise into it. So we got the bill through, and uh, I consider it one of my major accomplishments in my 23 years that I've been down here to get a piece of legislation of that magnitude through. And uh, now we're facing the, uh, the, uh, the override of the governor's veto. Right. Uh, we want to just make sure that all 29 votes hold firm, mm -hmm. because if we lose one vote, we don't, uh, we don't override the veto. Right, and so kind of speaking to that, uh, both chambers did pass the bill by veto-proof margins, um, and, but when all was said and done, Governor Hogan ended up vetoing the bill anyways. Uh, he then put together a commission to address the issue and has since put forth what he calls a compromise that he would like the General Assembly to consider. Uh, so do you feel, Senator Middleton, that what the governor has put forth constitutes a compromise? Uh, I, I don't know who he's compromised with. <laughs> you know, he's had, uh, they sent out, Secretary Schultz sent out to every legislator a request that since the governor uh, vetoed the bill, he's going to meet with uh, with workers and businesses, especially small, small businesses, see if he can't get a compromise. You know, And I have a very scathing letter from the secretary that uh, from what we can see, uh, they may have met with people, but there were no over, open meetings, you know, with this whole entire thing to get to this compromised uh, uh, bill. I, I had expressed willingness to work with, uh, with the, the administration on mm -hmm. three different occasions. They never took up that offer. The uh, business community did not support the governor's bill. Mm -hmm. There hasn't been a lot of change to the governor's bill that he's, his compromise bill than what was in the, his original bill. Um, and so I encouraged him to because I had taken it as far as I could. Mm -hmm. You know, I pushed the limits with the advocates in order to accommodate, you know, uh, uh, all the interests and to get enough votes to get the bill out of committee mm -hmm. and then get passage in the Senate. Uh, the governor has a whole lot more power than I do. They have the power of the budget. Right. And so for them to come back now when we've had a piece of legislation that's been before uh, the body four years to say, you know, and introduced his own piece of legislation last year. From what I can tell, I don't know that he worked it at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, if he really and truly wanted to, to get a compromise, he should have worked it. Mm -hmm. And so to come back now and say, oh, I've got a, a compromise bill, I want you to sustain my veto and take up my bill, mm -hmm. it's just a day late and a dollar short. So what should our listeners be looking for on the paid sick leave issue? I think you have to, what you have to do is you have to mobilize uh, uh, your listeners mm -hmm. that care about this bill mm -hmm. and let them know that one vote will change this whole entire outcome. It'll change the whole entire outcome. If we lose one of those 29 votes, then the governor's veto is sustained. And we move, we move forward without any uh, earned sick leave at all. And uh, so we would be remiss not to ask you while we have you here. Um, your committee, the Finance Committee, deals with some of the most high-profile issues that come before the General Assembly. Uh, so what other issues, aside from paid sick leave, should our <coughs> listeners be looking for this session? Okay, then uh, medical cannabis. Mm -hmm. that uh, we, we worked that out. That was sent over to my committee late in the session, and uh, we worked it out. We got a, a, a conference committee report where both House and Senate were agreeable. The conference committee report passed the Senate, but it got caught up in Sunny Diet. It was about two minutes too late to get it through. So uh, over the interim, most of all those outstanding issues have been worked through, mm -hmm. and there's a piece of legislation that uh, uh, I think is going to go very fast. The House has uh, already scheduled its hearing. That's going to be a very big piece of legislation. 
I'm, and I'm hopeful that uh, the governor will sign it in, into law. The other big issue that we're going to be dealing with is uh, the whole entire cost of prescription drugs. Mm -hmm. Last year, we passed out of my committee a bill that uh, we worked a lot of time here in my conference room with, uh, with the uh, pharmaceutical community, uh, the consumer groups and others, the attorney general, and we got the first of its kind, the first state in the nation that uh, uh, allowed the attorney general to move forward with uh, litigation against any generic company, any generic drug company, uh, uh, that uh, where there were only three or fewer companies that were actually manufacturing that drug, mm -hmm. if there was an unconscionable, and that's, you know, legally has to be determined, that's mm -hmm. what you, the proof of, if there was an unconscionable rate increase. First of its kind, it's withstand the court challenges. And so now this year there's, there are going to be bills for more transparency and, uh, and uh, how uh, pharmaceutical companies and uh, the pharmaceutical manufacturers price their drugs. Uh, there's going to be some requirement legislation. It's the Veni DeMarco package <laughs> that, uh, and I think the Attorney General is probably going to sponsor uh, one or two of them as, as well, uh, that just look at uh, uh, controlling these uh, huge price increases that we experience. 16%, 16 to 30% of the new increases in health care are coming from the increased cost of pharmaceutical uh, uh, prescription drugs. Um, when you talk to everybody at the federal level, you know, the rising cost of health care, especially in the individual market, it's not that this is being targeted as the one thing. We're looking at all of them, but this is certainly one of the dynamic uh, 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 pieces that's uh, driving the cost of health care up. So we have a policy responsibility to address that. And, uh, but at the same time, we have to take in balance. You know, our job as policy makers is to make sure that everybody gets fair treatment. Right. I mean, so our job is to look at all the information out there and come up with a balanced uh, 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 decision. One thing that's very, very important to all of us is that the economic development of all the research that we have into, you know, the research on new drugs, mm -hmm. you know, the whole 270 corridor. So that's a very, very big piece of our economic development. We don't want to drive those companies out, or we don't want to put ourselves in a position where we don't attract further research in those investment dollars in the state of Maryland. And that's all part of the Balancing Act. And so, you know, we try to build a consensus to the degree that we can. Great. Well, I know that we'll absolutely be keeping an eye on all of those yep. issues. And just want to say thank you again so much for joining us You're today. You're certainly welcome. I hope we have the opportunity to discuss other issues. Additionally, we wanted to get more information on the situation concerning falling temperatures and outdated infrastructure in the Baltimore school districts. Specifically, what the response has looked like from both state and local officials, as well as what an effective policy change would look like in order to address this issue going forward. To get a fuller picture on this issue, we sat down with Senator Bill Ferguson. So just to get us started, thank you, Senator, so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Gladly. Thanks for uh, speaking with me. Um, so just to kind of kick us off here, um, I know myself included, I think many people, when they heard about the issues um, with temperatures falling and the resources that the Baltimore schools do and do not have, were entirely just shocked. So right. can you just give us a little bit more background on this issue to get us started? Yeah, and I, I would say I, I think it's really important to start with the fact that um, we just have gone through our coldest period in Baltimore for the last 24 years. So. Um, what the city is facing is a historic cold wave um, that has challenged the old infrastructure that we have in really dramatic ways. And so 
Um, I, I do think it's important to think through the context. It's not that it was just cold. Um, you know, the city schools puts away emergency money for broken pipes uh, very often. And so uh, this wasn't just a matter of a, a normal cold streak. Uh, what we had was a historic cold. And so um, that, that's the underlying uh, issue that, that I think the city is dealing with. And this is not a new problem. And I think that's what's been so frustrating for me is that um, we have known that the city schools are old. I ran for office. I used to tell a story when I was a teacher in a classroom. I used to teach in a classroom without a doorknob. And I used to carry around a pair of scissors that I had to use to break in and out of my door every day. Um, I told that story all the time because I thought it was such an illustrative example of the, you know, the, really the failing infrastructure that we provide for young people in the city of Baltimore. And so um, sort of to hear kind of the 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 contemporary outrage. I mean, I'm glad there is a moment that we can focus on this, but you know, it's been the school system saying that this problem has been real for the last 10 years. Um, ever since I was in the classroom, I worked for the central office. I mean, this is not a new problem, and the school system has been doing whatever they can to take chunks out of the problem wherever possible. Uh, but you know, this is evidence of the scope of the need that is really unconscionable. I mean, it should never, no kid in the state of Maryland should ever have to go to a school where it's cold or hot. But we know the problem's complex, we know that it's big, and um, what's been frustrating is that I think it's very easy for folks to say, oh, there's mismanagement, there's corruption, there's, you know, no, this is a really hard problem, right? And it costs a lot of money, and talented professionals have been trying to deal with it for a while uh, with a very limited set of resources. And so instead of sort of lambasting how terrible everybody is, I think what would be best is if we step back and say, how do we fix it? I mean, that's what Marylanders want, is how do we fix this problem? Um, it's unconscionable in the state of Maryland that it exists. Let's fix it. And kind of speaking to that, um, Marylanders obviously do want a solution to this problem quickly because people have taken up um, personal contributions. Um, yep. There was a, a GoFundMe Kickstarter um, campaign to raise funds for the Baltimore schools so that they can address um, this infrastructure issue. So can you talk a little bit more about how the city itself has reacted? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, that that again should never be the case. I mean, I'm, I am it is, it is fantastic that people, sort of the generosity uh, that's been shown towards the school system, but in the public sector, this is not how it should work. We shouldn't rely on charity campaigns uh, to fund basic infrastructure that uh, that that should be the basic expectation. And so um, I'm inspired on one hand that these GoFundMe and, and sort of Kickstarter um, uh, efforts have come about, but it also depresses me because that shouldn't be how it works. Um, it, it should just be fundamental that we get this right. Uh, so, you know, I think in the last sort of, in the last week, the city of Baltimore and um, city schools have really stepped up above and beyond um, what they're traditionally doing. I mean, they have thrown enormous resources towards the problem, brought in BG&E, not mechanical, private um, contractors who came in to assist. Uh, and, and just like in the case of a hurricane, when you have an extreme situation, people come together and try and help. And I think that's sort of what the city schools is facing right now. And this sort of immediate crisis, that is what's needed, sort of just throw, um, throw a lot of fixes at the problem to just get it to a basic standard. Um, but what we know is that getting back to that basic standard is so subpar from what should be the expectation for kids in the state of Maryland. Uh, and so to deal with that larger infrastructure problem that is going to take time and resources to fix, um, it's going to take a lot of people to really think through what's the most efficient and effective way to replace nearly $500 million of HVAC systems in 160 old buildings. Uh, that is a lot of work and takes a lot of time and thoughtfulness. 
Um, fortunately, City Schools has been working on this process. Back in 2013, we passed a bill that um, creates a billion dollars for uh, 23 to 28 brand new school buildings. Part of the uh, uh, construction of those buildings is the closure of old decrepit buildings so that you can combine into new space. You don't have to replace old systems. You can just demolish the building because often it's more expensive to replace than to uh, – more expensive to repair than to replace a new building. Sure. So, um, so that was one component is building these 23 new buildings. It's a phenomenal initiative. It's really seen a lot of progress. There's been a lot of lessons learned throughout it. Another major component is that in that agreement, we required the city schools to create a comprehensive maintenance plan for all of its facilities, not just the new buildings. Mm -hmm. So in 2013, uh, the school system put together the first time a 10-year facilities comprehensive maintenance plan. It's been updated every year. Uh, and so there's been very intentional efforts to be more proactive about infrastructure replacement, but it costs money. And fundamentally, that's what it comes down to. There's been a lot of talk about this um, reverted funds, right, that the school system's given back $66 million. Um, it's very easy to look at that and say, oh, look how terrible they are. I, I think it's, it's the analogy that I think sort of best describes it um, is sort of, it, it's like saying to a mother who's on welfare and she has kids that, that she's the problem in society because she hasn't maximized her contributions to her 401k, right? Like when you're just trying to take care of your basic needs on a day-to-day -day basis, it's very difficult to do the long-term planning uh, that we know is most effective. And that's the situation that city schools faces. Uh, we're constantly dealing with one crisis after another with the infrastructure. So it makes it, we have less resources to do forward projects unless there is consistent comprehensive effort around it. So, um, you know, it's been, it's been complicated as to why those funds have been reverted. In some cases, it's because buildings were going to be shut down. So the school system didn't want to spend $2 million in a building that was going to be shut down in a year. I would say that's pretty fiscally responsible. Um, and then in other cases, the school system doesn't forward fund its projects. So when the bids actually come in and they're above the approved project cost, the school system has to revert the project funds and resubmit the next year for the escalated cost. Right. Um, that's a dynamic in the city that's unique, and um, it would have been nice for some folks to really look into that and talk to some folks, uh, talk to officials in the city schools to understand why that $66 million was reverted. Uh, and in fact, the city school system for the last five years has been saying, hey, folks, this is a problem. We need a better process for this because we can't afford to forward fund and do these projects and seek reimbursement. We need the money. We need more flexibility in the funds so that we know the exact cost when we seek them. Uh, City schools have been talking about that for five years, and just so happens that you know the governor decided to pay attention this week. And so, kind of speaking to that, and then circling back to also what you were saying about not playing the blame game and just putting up the resources that need to be put up, um, Governor Hogan himself um, and Comptroller Francho as well, uh, uh, their initial response to this issue was basically that Baltimore needs to handle it on their own, um, that this was their responsibility to begin with and it was going to be theirs to deal with. So can you tell us a little bit more about the response that you've seen from state officials? Yeah, I mean, last Wednesday during the P Board of Public Works meeting, um, Treasurer Cop brought up this issue and said, look, we've had public school construction funds uh, flows through the Board of Public Works. We've had all these snafus about AC and these sort of political fights. Uh, but, you know, I just she had said that she'd seen these pictures of students learning in coats and gloves, this sort of unconscionable picture that was shared. Um, and, you know, her reaction was, I hope that we can work towards finding a solution, supporting the city and finding ways to make sure that this isn't uh, isn't kept the same way. 
Well, the governor's immediate reaction was the city has sufficient resources, right? And, you know, I think that says a lot in my mind. Um, I, I, don't, I can't imagine somebody looking at that picture of students and teachers wearing coats in a classroom in the state of Maryland, freezing, and saying they've got plenty of resources, they can figure it out. Right. Um, you know, fortunately, after five days, six days, uh, there was sort of a coming around to maybe I should do something about this. Um, you know, in the meantime, the city schools and, and city of Baltimore were throwing enormous resources at the problem, got through a very long weekend and 72 hours of Friday through Sunday, um, just plugging away at these broken pipes. Um, so on Monday, when, when the governor came in with two and a half million dollars, look, we need resources. So that's, uh, it's appreciated. I do make do think it makes sense that the Department of General Services oversees that two and a half million. Uh, but this is a, you know, 500 to 600 million dollar problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I'm most concerned about is how do we make sure we're not in the same place next year? Right. right. And, and I think that's what we all need to be figuring out now. Sure. Um, and I mean, so we talked just now about the, the state officials response that we've seen, but Mayor Pugh has also been doing a lot um, on the ground, like you said, getting through this long weekend, trying to get those repairs done and make sure that things are good to go. So can you tell us a little bit more about um, what happened this weekend um, and the response that we've seen from the city? Yeah. Um, so I think it was around Thursday or Friday, the school system reached out and really said, like, we just do not have the sheer number of people needed to do the assessments on buildings. So if you have 60 buildings and you have one person that oversees eight schools, you know, going to each school uh, twice in a day takes up your entire day. Mm-hmm. And when there are 60 schools that are documented as having problems, uh, it just the, the human power needed to just even manage and figure out what's wrong is enormous. And so the school system reached out. Um, to her credit, Mayor Pugh really jumped on the jumped jumped on the effort. Um, made some calls to some private folks that have helped in sort of cri- uh, crisis situations in the past, and they were doing a uh, you know daily inspection, um, but actually it was more like an hourly inspection, uh, going into the buildings, assessing the problems. Uh, for the for the main the main work was around repairing busted pipes. Um, so a lot of it is steam generated heat, and so pipes that had frozen. Uh, were um, sort of these radiator systems were were breaking. But the other issue that I think hasn't gotten a lot of attention is the windows. So HVAC systems are one component, but in these old buildings, these windows are like Swiss cheese. Mm -hmm. And so you can have all the heat in the world, but your windows don't hold it in, and so you might as well not have any heat running. Sure. So uh, a number of folks from BG&E, from um, the city DPW department, um, from uh, Department of Transportation, we're going in and doing uh, assessments of the windows and sort of using um, insulation tape as appropriate, caulking them up. Uh, so it, it's a very dynamic process. They would have schools that they said were resolved. Two hours later, a new pipe would break. So resolved only meant resolved at that moment. So it's, it's unfortunately a pretty dynamic and ongoing problem. We're not through the crisis yet. Um, it's going to be ongoing. Uh, I think this, this cold streak really stretched us to our stretch the city to its, uh, to its limit. Um, and I do want to point out that, you know, the mayor was extremely helpful and that was in the context of over 40 water main breaks across the Baltimore region. So, um, DPW staff were incredibly helpful to the school system, but they were also out with emergency crews dealing with broken pipes under the ground. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is, uh, this is what old tired infrastructure looks like, you know, uh, 
when we think in Maryland, uh, what should we be doing to build the economy, to grow jobs, to uh, employ people at, at good family-sustaining wages? Infrastructure is obvious, and here is what it looks like when it fails. Let's come up with a bold, big solution that we really are investing in our neighborhoods and our communities with the sort of public works projects that we know are, are helpful for everybody. Um, that's what I think the best response to all of this would be, is, is a, a real thoughtful program that puts Marylanders to work and, uh, and makes our public infrastructure as high quality as it should and can be. Absolutely. So I think um, you've definitely given our listeners a lot of both new information and kind of things to look for going forward, which we really appreciate. Gladly. Thank you again so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for focusing on the issue. Thanks so much for listening and join us again next week for more from Our Maryland's Politics and Policy podcast. In the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or on our website at www.ourmaryland.us for the most up-to-date news and information.